Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. Good morning. For those of you who know, whether you're in the room or online, I'm not Pastor Josh. My name is Joe, and I'm one of the leaders here. That wasn't a mistake. Pastor Josh was actually scheduled to preach today, but earlier in the week, Pastor Josh got very sick. He actually spent a few days in the hospital this week. So for those of you who knew, thank you for praying for him. For, if you didn't know that, please continue to pray for him as he recovers. We thought it best that he not have to um, come to church today and, and, and give, but that he could spend some time today and rest. And so he's doing that now. Um, and since he's uh, chosen to get sick, he'll do anything to get out of preaching. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> unbelievable. No, I'm just kidding. He had a great, he had a great message for today, but um, since he isn't here, I get the privilege of going back to Luke chapter 9, where we were last week. I didn't really get to finish uh, my portion of the scripture there that I wanted to, so if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 9, and the reason I didn't really get to finish is because last week, if you weren't here or you weren't watching, we, from the passage, jumped into uh, a Q&A with Pastor Jeff and I, um, where we announced and discussed a little bit his upcoming sabbatical leave that he'll be taking in mid-July. And he'll be gone for several weeks uh, this summer uh, doing a period of reset and refreshment that is now an employment policy here at the church for pastors that every five years or so, the pastors would do that, not as a reaction or response to burnout, but Uh, so that we can remain proactive so that burnout doesn't come. We want to finish well, and we want to continue growing together as a healthy church, and this is a crucial part of it. And so we announced that last week, and because we did, I didn't get a chance to go uh, too deep into Luke chapter 9 like I would have wanted, and so thanks, Pastor Josh. Um, I will get the opportunity to do that today. So if you have a Bible with you, Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 6 is where we'll be. If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to put the words on the screen. If you don't have a Bible with you because you don't own a Bible, we want you to have one. And so before you leave today, stop by the welcome station and pick up a Bible there. If you're watching online and you don't have a Bible and you want one, send a message to us, to the prayer host, and say that you need a Bible. We'll find a way to get you one. We say this all the time. We want everybody to have a copy of the Bible because it's important to us. So Luke chapter 9, I've got my, it's that time of year where I need my televangelist rag whenever I, <laughs> whenever I preach. And so I've got that handy so I don't slip all over the place like I nearly did last week. Okay, Luke chapter 9, <laughs> verses 1 through 6. It says, And he, Jesus, called the twelve apostles together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money. Do not have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, because some people are going to reject you guys, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing 
everywhere. Every week we get together and we study the Bible together, and every week when we take the time to study the Bible together, we also take the time to pause and pray and ask that God would lead us and guide us and speak to us. Because let's be honest, it's not me you want to hear from. It's the Holy Spirit. And so my prayer is always that uh, you'll hear things from God that I didn't even say, and they'll be more impactful for you than anything I could ever tell you. So would you pray with me that God would do that for us today? Lord, we're so thankful that we have the gift of the Bible to tell us about who you are, to teach us more about your love for us, that it teaches us more about Jesus. Lord, I pray today that we would leave knowing more about Jesus than we did when we came in. That's the only thing we get today, Lord, is that we would know more about Jesus than we did when we came in. We thank you that we have the opportunity to to do that just by opening the Bible. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to ask a question that will underlie all of what I want to talk about today and will influence how we think about the passage we're going to study and and hopefully really get us to think about what our answer to this question would be. And the question is, what's the most important thing in your life? What's the most important thing in your life? Now, each of us will answer this question differently. Some of us will say that family is the most important thing in our life. Some of us would say that our career is the most important thing in our life. Some would say that health is the most important thing. Some might even say that money is the most important thing in our lives. And each of us will have a different answer to this question because each of us have different experiences. And the experiences that we've had in life lay into what leads us to answer this question. For example, if you were to say that family is the most important thing in your life, it could be because there was a time where family didn't mean so much to the people who raised you. If you say that health is the most important thing in your life, it could be because yourself or someone that you love has gone through a period of time where, where they were in very poor health. If you were to say that money was the most important thing to you, it could be because there was a time where you didn't have any at all, and now that you do, you want to keep getting more, which I think is a good thing. <laughs> But we'll all have different answers to those questions because our experiences in life shape the way that we view our lives. They shape the way that we view the world. We call this our worldview, the way that we view the world. Isn't that a fun thing that they've done with that phrase? Our worldview is influenced by our experiences, the things that we've learned, the the relationships that we have. And because our worldview is experienced, is is shaped by all of those experiences, we will all answer that question differently. What's the most important thing in my life? And maybe underlying that question, when you consider how our worldview shapes how we would answer it, maybe the real question we should ask is, what or who is in charge of my life? Because we can, when we can answer that question, who is in charge of my life, I think we're better prepared to answer the question, what's the most important thing in my life? Jesus, we learn in Luke 
chapter 9, verse 1, as he calls his 12 apostles together, he gives to them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And we have seen in the previous chapter that, that he was doing those very things. He was casting demons out of people. He was curing people of their diseases. And now he's gathered his apostles around him and he says, I'm going to give this same power and authority to you. And what strikes me most about that is that Jesus can give them power and authority because he has the power and authority. In fact, the Bible tells us he has all power and authority. In the book of Colossians, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to read it. Verse 1, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He was before all creation. By him, all things were created. Things in heaven, things on earth, things we can see, things that we can't see, whether they're thrones or rulers or authorities. Jesus created all things, and he created them for himself. And he is before all things, and he's holding all things together. And in everything, he is preeminent. Jesus has all power and authority on this earth. And the understanding of that, giving that to his apostles, saying, saying, you've got all my power and authority to do the things that I have done. He sends them out to, in verse 2, proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, Oftentimes when we hear the phrase kingdom of God, it makes us instantly think of that place that we hope to go to when we die. We instantly oftentimes equate the kingdom of God with heaven, don't we? That, that is not really the way the Bible describes the kingdom of God, though. The kingdom of God in the Bible is described as God's rule and reign here on earth, here and now. That God is in charge that God is sovereign, he is reigning, he is ruling over all things on this earth, and he sends his apostles to share this message that Jesus is in charge, that Jesus is ruling and reigning over all things. And because he is, it should influence the way we think about all of our life. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal, and the way that they proved that God's kingdom had come is that they performed miracles. They cured people of their diseases. They cast out demons in people who were controlled by them. We read this throughout the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus, of which Luke is one of them. We read it throughout the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts, which is a history of the foundation of the church, that, that everywhere God's people went, everywhere they had this message that God is in charge, he proved it by performing miracles. We even see this throughout the history of the church beyond biblical times, that, that there are certain periods of history where miracles and healings and great things that God does become more prevalent than they do at other times. Sometimes we call these things revivals. Your history books might call the ones that took place in the United States in the, the 18th and 19th century the Great Awakenings. They, they were periods of time where, where God seemed to do special and extra and different miracles amongst his people, proving again that he is still in charge. Renaissance is part of a denomination. We don't 
like to call it a denomination necessarily. We like to think of ourselves as more of a, a family. Uh, uh, we're part of a family of churches called the Foursquare Church. And the Foursquare Church was actually founded in the midst of one of these quote-unquote revivals in the early 20th century where many healings were taking place, where, where many miracles were taking place. And, and because all of this exciting stuff was going on and God was proving that he is still in charge and in control, many people went out and planted churches all across the United States and even all across the world. And we still believe that Jesus wants to do those things today. That just as he was curing people of diseases when he walked on this earth, just as he was setting people free from the things that controlled them while he walked on this earth, we believe that, that he's the very same today that he was back then. And, and we believe that he'll still be the same tomorrow, that he's unchanging in his desire to set people free and to heal them. And he gave his apostles this instruction that they would go and prove that he is in charge with these particular miracles. And he says to them in verse three, take nothing for your journey. Don't take a staff, don't take a walking stick, don't take your backpack, don't take bread or money, don't have two tunics, you don't need an extra coat with you. He says, take nothing for your journey, which is an interesting thing because now he's sending them out to do the things that he'd done. And at this point, they hadn't been following him too awful long. And so now they're kind of like, was this even going to work for us like it worked for Jesus? Are we really going to be able to do the same things that he did? And we even see stories where they came back to him and said, Jesus, we couldn't cast a demon out of that guy. And he reminded them that they had such small faith. And so here they are about to step out into this thing that God has called them to do. And he says, don't take anything with you. No security blankets for you. Leave the whoopee at home. Leave it at home. Because, because I want you to go out and realize that all things come from me. I want you to know and to understand that, that if I truly have power and authority over diseases and demons, I've got power and authority over your life too, and I can take care of you. And so you feel like you're going out alone, but guess what? There's going to be a place for you to stay every night. There's going to be people who will bring you food and take care of you. This is all going to happen. So I want you to just go all in. It's the call that he makes to them. And they do it. And they go. All in. And this phrase, take nothing with you, would have been reminiscent to them of the teaching they'd received regarding the place where they often would go to worship God, the temple. So the temple was this large building in the city of Jerusalem that, that the Jewish people would go to to bring sacrifices, animal sacrifices to God as an act of worship. And they believed that this is actually where God lived. In fact, the temple was called the house of God. And in Jesus' day, there was a teaching from many rabbis that said, when you go to the temple, apart from the sacrifice you have, take nothing with you. When you go to worship God, when you go to that place, when you go to God's house where you realize, where you're completely focused on this idea that he's completely in charge, he's completely in control, he's the one who's taking care of everything, you take nothing with you. Jesus is saying the same thing here. The, the, same, the same devotion that you put into your worship towards God, you're going to put it into your work on this mission as well and take nothing with you because God's taking care of you in all of it. So this brings me back to the question, what's the most important thing in your life? 
I was asking myself this question this week. I didn't uh, uh, think that as I was studying for this message that I would actually begin to be uh, convicted myself and, and feel almost guilty in some ways as I was thinking about how I'd answer this question because I said this to myself. Like, if I can, if I can think about the way that I spend my time and my energy and the way that my time and my energy is spent, that can determine for me what is the most important thing in my life. So I began to take an account of that. And then I had this question for myself. What would my wife say is the most important thing in my life? Based on that metric, how do you spend your time and your energy? What would my wife say? Do you want to know what the most important thing in your life is? Ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Ask your kids. Ask the person who's close to you. Hey, what do you think the most important thing in my life is? And if they love you, they'll tell you the truth. And I bet many of us would be shocked when we hear what other people think the most important thing in our lives is. I would hope that my wife would say, well, Joe, the most important thing in your life is that you are continuing to be a wonderful husband. I would hope that she would say that. Hope that she would say, Joe, I think one of the most important things in your life is that you really care about becoming a better leader. I, I think, Joe, that one of the most important things in your life is that you really care about growing as a follower of Jesus. But when I use the metric, how do I spend my time and my energy, can I answer the question in those ways? What is the most important thing in your life? Jesus says... We'll find that out by our willingness to hold on to things that we really love or to let go of it all and just do what he says. He says to them further in verse 4, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Kind of saying, there's going to be a place where you're taken care of everywhere you go. I'm going to make sure of that in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, because there will be people that reject you, Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet. You're going to go places, he's saying to them, you're going to go places where people reject your message, where people reject the truth that you're giving them. They won't even believe the miracles that they see with their own eyes, and they're going to reject you. But you can't take it personally. You can't see it as an assault or an offense or an affront against yourself. You have to see it for what it is. They're just rejecting the truth. So instead of fighting and arguing and taking it personally, you just turn away and, and shake the dust off your feet. You just treat it as trivial as you would dust on your feet, although some of you would not treat that so trivially. I see your shoes. You, you treat it as trivially as you would dust on your feet and you move on to something different because it's not that big of a deal. Now this idea of shaking the dust off their feet uh, came from their culture. They believed that if they were to travel to a land that was inhabited by people who were not Jewish, who were not God's people. And, and they, they traveled through a land that was full of people who they called them Gentiles, and the Gentiles worshiped false gods. If, they, if they'd been in a land where people were worshiping false gods, they believed that even the dust on the ground was defiled, so that when they came back to their homeland, before they entered their land, they shook the dust off their feet so as to not bring that with them. It's kind of like when you go visit 
somewhere and you've got mud on your feet, when you come in, you don't traipse the mud across the floor. You take your shoes off and leave your muddy boots at the door. Jesus says that that, that stuff, that rejection that you received, that, that hurt that came from him, just leave it at the door. Don't, don't treat it like it's that big of a deal. Why? Because guess what? Especially if they're not my people, it doesn't matter. This is a little soapbox I have, and we don't deal with this too much here at Renaissance because in many ways, we're a different kind of a church, I think. But I know for, for many churches, and I'm not trying to hate on anybody, kind of, but not too much. But li- listen, this is how it is. We will take our values, we will take our moral code, we will take the things that are important to us as followers of Jesus, and we will expect people who are outside the church to have the same values, the same moral code, the same set of behavior that, guess what, we're not even following most of the time. And we place that expectation on people who can't do it because their heart hasn't been made new by Jesus like ours has. And so we spend a lot of time arguing and and fighting people and shaming people. And no wonder so many people say, I want nothing to do with the church. You know what we want here? We we want a group of people who, who are so loving to others who are different from us that anybody can come in the door and feel safe and welcome. That anybody could come in and belong even before they believe. And guess what? When you have a place where you can belong and where people care about you and are actually showing you what Jesus is like, it's really hard not to become like him eventually anyway. And we don't have to beat people over the head with the Bible. I'm going to step off my soapbox now. Anyway, that's extra. That's for free. When we consider how the most important thing in our life will affect the way we react and respond to discomfort, to offense, if Jesus and people are the most important thing in my life, I will not do to them what they've done to me if it's wrong. When when the most important thing in my life is Jesus and people, my perspective on everything is different. A couple years ago, I turned 33 and... Uh, it was kind of a big deal for me to turn 33 because that was, like, that's how old Jesus was when he died. And so I'm like, okay, what's waiting for me? <laughs> it was also how old Jesus was when he rose from the dead. So I'm like, okay, what's waiting for me at, 30, at 33? And, and it, it's my birthday month, and I'm thinking about that a lot. And I run into a guy I know who on that day was his birthday, and he was turning 66 exactly twice my age. I'm like, how cool is that? So, so I said, John, if you could go back to your 33-year-old self and tell him one thing that you've learned over the past 33 years, what would that be? And without hesitating, he said, don't sweat the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff, which was kind of kicking the gut for me because I sweat the small stuff. He said, don't sweat the small stuff. And, and guess what, Joe? The older you get, the more you realize that so much of what you think is big is actually really small. When, when, when our perspective changes of what is truly most important, those things that rattle us and shake us and upset us will change as well when we can set our eyes on what is most important. Now, as I've gotten older, I've found that I tend to 
repeat stories to people. Kind of like a grandpa. <laughs> I have a dad bod and a granddad mind. And so I'll find myself doing that. And I caught myself doing this a couple weeks ago. I think it was Pastor Josh. I was telling him a story that I'd already told him before. And I realized I'd already told it to him before after I walked away. And he graciously listened to me like it was the first time he'd heard. You don't have to do that. I can take it if you just say, Joe, Grandpa, you've already told me this story before. You don't have to repeat it. And I do that because I'll forget. And I only have my own stories. That's all I've got. So there's just a few of them to tell. And so if I've told you, I might tell you tomorrow and then you the next day. And then I'll tell you again because I forgot that I've already told you. If I do that, just say, Joe, you've already told me this story. And I won't be surprised that I have. And I tend to repeat myself in those times because I'm becoming more forgetful, I guess, which is terrifying at this age. (laughs) What's to come? Who knows? But uh, the Bible actually repeats itself over and over again, too. And not because the author is forgetful, because in ancient literature, something they would do to lay emphasis into their writing was to repeat things over and over. Now, now we can put it in bold or italic. We can change the font. We can do all caps. We can highlight it. They didn't have that same sort of thing back then. So they would repeat themes and phrases and words and ideas. And one of these oft-repeated ideas throughout the Bible is that when we recognize who God is, we lay aside all that we have on this earth and we just give everything over to him. We completely surrender to who Jesus is when we realize that he really is the most important thing. And one of the ways that this is used to describe that is through the phrase, deny yourself, that Jesus uses a few times in the New Testament. And um, in Luke chapter 9, we learned that after he'd sent his apostles out to go heal people and perform miracles, that news started to spread. Like, there's something to this Jesus guy. Crazy things are happening, and rumors begin. Maybe he's one of our old prophets that God has raised from the dead, and people are wondering who he really is, and multitudes, thousands of people start following him, hoping that he'll do something for them too. And we learn in chapter 9 that there's a moment where... Uh, A multitude of people, thousands of them are following Jesus, so much so that they've followed him for days and they've run out of food and they're hungry. And so he feeds them. Maybe you've heard the story where he takes like a five buck lunch and just a a, a couple of uh, chicken tenders and a biscuit and he he breaks it and he feeds 5,000 men, not counting the women and children. He performs this miracle and after that miracle, we learn in Luke chapter nine, verse 18, that he got alone to pray with his disciples. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? Like, it's unusual for people to just follow a guy. What are they saying about me? And they said, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say, Jesus, that you're that guy. You know, you remember your cousin, John, who a few months ago had been baptizing people and telling people that they need to turn back to God. The guy that was actually beheaded by the king. Some people are saying that you're him, raised from the dead. Some, some say that you're our old prophet Elijah, the most powerful prophet from the Old Testament, and others that one of the other prophets has risen. Then he said to them, that's fine. I don't know those people. I know you guys. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, well, you're the Christ of God. You're God's chosen one. You're the one that God has sent to this earth to renew and restore 
all things. You're the, the one that God has sent to establish his kingdom on the earth. And Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man, which is just a nickname that he used for himself often, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Over and over and over again, he's warning them, one day I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to pick up a cross, and I'm going to carry it to my place of execution. He warns them of this over and over. And he said to them in verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Uh, Just as they'd been out doing the same things Jesus had done, performing the miracles, curing diseases, casting out demons, he said, I've given you power and authority to do all of these things, and now I'm calling on you to deny yourself just like I will. Pick up your cross and follow me, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? It's almost like Jesus is saying, what really is the most important thing in your life? And I can hear him asking us that question today. And I can hear him saying to us, just as he said to them, why don't you deny yourself? Take up your cross and follow me. Now the interesting thing about that, taking up your cross, is that when a person would do that, they were condemned to death. If you saw that, they were walking the green mile. They were on their way to carry their instrument of their execution to the place where they would be killed. And Jesus said, this is what following me is like. You deny yourself, you pick up your cross, and you expect to receive this kind of death. But did you notice that the only cross that the Bible ever really talks about is Jesus's? We don't don't get told a lot about our cross that we carry. We don't get told much about the cross of Peter, who history would tell us when he was eventually crucified for following Jesus, for going all in all his life, that he asked to be crucified upside down because he felt unworthy to be crucified in the same manner that Jesus was. We don't hear about Peter's cross. We only hear about the cross of Jesus. Why is that? It's because even though it's my cross, and I pick it up, and I walk up that hill, and I follow Jesus there, and I get to it, he still lays down on it and dies for me. It's my cross that he died on. The call always feels like, pick it up and die, and Jesus says, if you pick it up, you'll live. He's the one who died for us. We love to make it about our cross and say, woe is me. Look at all of the bad things that's happened to my life. Oh, just if you only knew the cross that I bear, and Jesus says, would you just look at the cross of yours that I died on for you? To, to give complete healing, to, to give complete salvation and rescue from sin and everything that would cause us trouble. We don't sing songs about our own cross. We sing songs about the cross of Jesus. Because though the call to deny ourselves feels great, and it is, it feels harsh, and it is, and it's hard to do, it's so hard to do. What he's really calling us to do is walk up that hill and see that even though I deserved to lay down on the cross, he died on it for me. 
I pick up my cross and I carry it and Jesus dies on it. When I see that, when I, when I look to that cross of Christ, when I take my eyes off of all of the things that, that w- I want to bring with me to him, that all of the things I want to bring along and say, if I, if I can just take this with me, I'll be okay. If I can just hang on to this, I'll be okay. If I can just make sure that I check your boxes, you know the things that you have that you rely on for security. And we bring them along and Jesus says, don't bring any of those. I've got it all covered. I'm going to lay down here and die for you. When we look at that and see that that is what has been done for us, what else can we do but to say, I'm, I'm giving it all. We drop all of our stuff at that point and, and, and complete surrender to the one who surrendered it all and denied himself completely. For me, we say, Jesus, I'll go anywhere you want to go want me to go. I'll serve wherever you want me to serve. I'll do whatever you ask of me because of all of what you've done for me. It's never about what you and I can do. It's never about, and we love to make it about how much we've denied ourselves. We love to make it about how much we sacrifice. You know, in the Bible, in the book of Romans, the apostle Paul is talking about this same kind of thing of denying ourselves. And he says that when we do that, it's as though we're a living sacrifice. It's interesting, isn't it, that he calls it a living sacrifice. Why do you think the sacrifice that we make to Jesus is still alive? It's because Jesus already died. So we get to live over and over and over again. This theme comes out in the scriptures. We hear the call, come and die. But when we get there, we see that Jesus has laid down and died for us. And so what do we do with that? We just look to him and we say, Lord, if you're not the most important thing in my life, show me what you've done for me. Show me how you've given it all for me. Show me the sacrifice you made on my behalf. Show me that you have laid down on my cross. When we see that, when we see that he gave up everything for us, it's really hard to not be willing to give up everything for him. The band will return in a moment, and when they do, they're gonna give us an opportunity to do just that, to spend some time focusing in worship on Jesus. And I, I would ask us today that during this time, and it's real easy to check out, it's real easy to start checking messages that you've felt buzzed, that you felt guilty to look at because you didn't want me to notice that. It's real easy to do that during worship, but it's just a few more minutes. Why don't we just take that time since we're here and focus on Jesus? Turn our eyes to the cross of Christ and see all that he's done for us and thank him for. And from that place of thankfulness, we leave here with our hearts fully surrendered to a God who loves us more than we could ever imagine, more than we can ever fathom. Would you pray with me? Lord, we're so thankful that you gave it all for us. We're so thankful that all we have to do is come and believe. Lord, we're so thankful that It doesn't have to be about us. We could never do enough. 
We have nothing to bring. We're so thankful that it's, it's I'm so thankful, Lord, it's not about my own self-denial and self-discipline. If it were, Lord, I'd be so lost. We're so thankful that it's not about uh, our good works, that it's not about how important we've made you. It's always and forever will be about what you did for us, how important you made us to you on the cross. And so we look to you in thankfulness and we say, Lord, thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name. Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.